0: Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck
1: Buck. Thank you, Clark, Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 371st edition of Talk to Tuesday, brought to you today by the American Health Information Management Association. Of course, we know them as AHIMA. And joining me this morning is my guest co-host, Holly Louie. Holly is the past president of the Healthcare Business and Management Association. And good morning, Holly. Thanks very much for sitting in this morning with Dr. Erica Reamer.
2: Good morning, Chuck. Hello, everyone.
1: This morning, you'll conclude your report on inaccurate coding, but also you're going to be talking about regulations for CMS concerning codes and LCDs, right?
2: That is right, Chuck, and it is a huge change that we're going to be discussing later.
1: And speaking of coding, Lori Johnson has returned to Talk Ten Tuesday with the coding report. And Rhonda Buckholtz is here to talk about new codes in ICD-11.
2: That's right, Chuck. ICD-11 is still too far in the future.
1: Yeah, but the future is really here, as we're going to learn this morning when Dr. Nick Vanderhaden reports on mobile medicine, moving the intensive care monitoring unit out into the community.
2: And Stanley Nakinson returns with his popular Reg Watch segment. That's a lot of news coming out of Washington.
1: You're right, there really is, Holly. And finally, Dr. H. Stephen Moffitt has a Talk 10 Tuesday mental health report. We have much news report this morning during today's Talk 10 Tuesday, but we begin with ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent Tim Powell, who's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk.
0: The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University, inviting you to an on-demand webcast featuring Dr. James Kennedy, now available at the ICD University Bookstore. Here now is Tim Powell. Hi, Chuck. And
3: I was looking on the Internet, and I saw uh, an image with the iconic Internet cloud, and under the caption it read, there is no cloud, it's just someone else's computer. I want to let that sink in and get past the humor to what it means to how consumers connect to providers and payers in our increasingly Internet-based society. Due to the overuse of the term cloud and cloud-based, Many computer users are lulled into complacency thinking that Internet data and applications are somehow regulated in one giant cloud. What is always on top of a floating cloud, it brings an image of a white-bearded man that many of us pray to on Sunday taking care of us. Well, let's start with the basics. Your computer has software we call a browser. This software allows us to connect to computers around the world. Your browser software connects through a modem. The modem connects with a company that provides Internet service what we call an Internet Service Provider, or ISP. Your browser software creates packets of data and sends them through your ISP, through your modem. Your ISP forwards these packets of information to the Internet where they're picked up based on addresses in the packet. What could go wrong? Well, all the other people connected to the Internet can read your packets of data. Recently, all major producers of browser software's require data passed back and forth through websites, be encrypted using something called SSL, or Secure socket layer, or and this means that data going back and forth from your computer to another computer can't be read by anyone but you and the computer you connect to. Even if the data, our current system, and our current system assumes that the companies we connect to are using encryption and no one's stealing your information, users of the data, including healthcare data, can be lulled into providing more data than they should because the data is residing on one large omnipresent and kind-hearted cloud instead of somebody else's computer. This whole issue is pushed forward on steroids with the advent of blockchain technology. Consumers need to ask their healthcare providers the following questions when looking at electronic health records. First, is it true? Does the data that you see reflected uh, agree with what you know? Next, who, uh, who are you sharing my data with? And finally, how long are you going to keep copies of my data? Remember that as consumers, we make contracts on data use all the time, and we should take care and take care of yourself out there. And with that, back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor National Correspondent. It's Tuesday. It's June 4, 2019. And on this day, 1919, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution guaranteeing the women the right to vote, is passed by Congress, and, of course, the rest is history. But on this day, you're listening to the 371st edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. Stand by.
0: Plan to join 600 of your peers from around the country at the 2019 Clinical Coding Meeting, September 14th and 15th in Chicago. Join sessions and conversations covering CDI, revenue cycle, professional services, facility services, 2020 coding updates, compliance, auditing, and innovation. If you're looking for cutting-edge coding education, peer-to-peer collaboration, and engaging discussions, look no further than right here. Attendees earn CEUs and CNEs, and all advanced full registrations receive a free AHIMA Gold Standard 2020 ICD-10 Codebook. Visit ahima.org slash clinicalcoding
1: for more information. Now is the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Senior Healthcare Consultant Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori.
4: Good morning, Jack, and good morning, Holly, and hello to our listeners. Physician burnout has been discussed on Talk 10 Tuesday since 2016. In fact, on August 9, 2016, ICD-10 Monitor published an article looking for a code for physician burnout. Physician burnout has become a hot topic since the World Health Organization acknowledged the condition as an occupational phenomenon. There are some estimates that physician burnout is experienced by over 50% of the physicians. This is not just an American phenomenon. The Journal of the American Medical Association published a recent study that included 45 countries. The journal stated, in this systemic review, there was substantial variability in prevalence estimates of burnout among practicing physicians and marked variations in burnout definitions, assessment methods, and study quality. These findings preclude definitive conclusion about the prevalence of burnout and the highlight of importance of developing a consensus definition of burnout and of standardizing measurement tools to assess the effects of chronic occupational stress on physicians. In my words, burnout does exist and we are not sure um, how to quantify what the chronic stress or how the chronic stress impacts physicians long-term. Physician suicide rate is 400 per year, which is twice the general population. The cost of physician burnout may be as high as $4.6 billion. Unfortunately, ICD-10-CM does not have a unique code for physician burnout, but there is a code for burnout, Z73.0. In the Social Determinants of Health section, Z55 to Z65, we also capture the contributing factors, Z56.3, stressful work schedule, Z63.8, family estrangement, and Z56.6, work-related stress. The codes, along with PTSD, which is F43.10 to F43.12, can assist in data analysis regarding the severity and breadth of this phenomenon. Back to you, Holly.
2: Thank you so much, Laurie. That was Laurie Johnson. Laurie is a Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Holly. And Laurie, thank you very much. And you can read Laurie's reporting on this very timely topic in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. Believe it or not, their new ICD-11 codes, codes for corneal dystrophy. Here now with our new segment called News at 11 is Rhonda Vocals. Good morning, Rhonda.
5: Good morning, Chuck. Thanks for having me. Interestingly enough, there's 20 types of corneal dystrophy. Um, there was a proposal for 2019 uh, to uh, broaden those, and um, it was presented at the March uh, Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting. So right now, our only choices are um, a few. There's nodular, other, unspecified, and hereditary. Um, so when you think back to 20 different types, it's really hard to capture the data. Clinically, you can actually break the corneal dystrophies into groups based on the anatomical location of the abnormality. Um, and the treatment of it actually depends on the type of dystrophy, um, as well as the severity of the symptoms. And so when we start talking type and severity, we would want codes that we can report that help justify the services, the treatments that we're offering. And so you would probably think that we would want to see the codes broken down kind of in that nature um, in ICD-10 and, of course, then in future ones as well. So the American Academy of Ophthalmology, or the AAO, requested new codes this year for hereditary Uh, endothelial, granular lattice, macular, um, and then for any complications for um, transplant or transplant failure. It's going to help us be better able to track outcomes and significantly help us on our quality measurements as well. And of course, in typical U.S. fashion, um, with our clinical modifications, those code requests included laterality as well, um, which is something that's still missing in icd 11 So the proposal that they put forward actually pairs up a little bit with offerings that are available in ICD-11. And so in ICD-11, we have choices um, for some of the different anatomical locations, some types, um, and those types of things. But interestingly enough, for some of the codes where the AAO actually asks for specificity, there's less specificity in ICD-11. So in ICD-11, the other bucket for corneal dystrophies actually includes granular, lattice, macular, stromal, um, and there's a laundry list of other ones. So we actually lose granularity in ICD-11 from the proposals that we actually have now in ICD-10-CM. So this is just simply a good reminder that we have a long way to go in making clinical modifications. In order for us to actually be able to use the new coding classification. Um, otherwise, it's not going to be useful for us for our tracking and our quality measures. Um, I can't imagine us embracing a coding system that actually takes us backwards, but this is a good chance for us to make sure our physician's documentation is on point for upcoming changes and be forward thinking in our planning. And so, um, right, as I've mentioned kind of in the past, what I, I try to always focus on. The goal of good documentation shouldn't be designed to meet the coding requirements, but we want to focus our efforts on the condition um, through the evidence-based medicine guidelines rather than the coding regulation. And back to you, Holly.
2: Thank you so much, Rhonda. That was Rhonda Beckholtz, and she is the Chief Compliance Officer for Century Vision Global. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Holly. And by the way, uh, you can read Rhonda's reporting on this very important subject in today's ICD-10 Monitor News. Thanks again, Rhonda. Moving the intensive care monitoring unit out into the community to improve health care is our Tuesday focus. And Here now with that report is Dr. Nick Vanderhaiden. Good morning, Dr. Nick.
6: Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everybody on the uh, uh, phone today. Uh, Thanks for having me. Uh, As you heard, we're talking a little bit about uh, continuous monitoring and the capacity to move the intensive care unit out into uh, the home. The question I always ask people is, who wants to age in a retirement home or a retirement community? And pretty much I get a 100% response that says, no, I'd rather be in my own personal circumstance. So moving our capacity from the hospital into the medical home, as we term it, is an essential component of that. What's interesting to me about continuous monitoring is this has been around for a long time. To give you some context, we landed on the moon 50 years ago, back in 1969, and NASA uh, and the space program has been doing telemetry for a long, long period of time, monitoring their astronauts and really gathering all of that data. I had the opportunity to talk to Dr. Wayne Durkak. He's the senior vice president of medical affairs at Biotel, and they've been pushing out their uh, capacity to monitor uh, since 2002. They've had uh, an FDA-approved telemetry device that works wirelessly. Again, for some context for that, what was going on in 2002? Well, that's when the euro currency was officially launched. Uh, G.W. Bush was president of the United States. The Mars Odyssey uh, found water. And Harry Potter, uh, the Chamber of Secrets movie, was launched. So that was a long time ago. They've managed to do this and do this successfully, and the devices have just gotten smaller, better, and more automated in terms of the monitoring. And what's really intriguing about this is is it's no longer sending the information for somebody to view, but there's actually localized assessment of that uh, rhythm strip and some automation that says rather than having an individual watch this, what we're doing is watching it, All of the time, every second of the day, we see continuous tracking using uh, machine learning, automated intelligence, and some algorithms that are not so much in the cloud that we heard about a little bit earlier, but actually taking place on the device. That's really exciting to give real-time feedback, actionable data for people to age safely in their home, and provide some intervention at the appropriate time so that when we have a problem, Somebody can get engaged, and we can provide the appropriate support. That's exciting. That's the kind of medicine that I want in the medical home, and that's the future of medicine as we see all of this shift out into uh, uh, the medical home. I'm Dr. Nick. I'm the incrementalist. Don't let perfection stand in the way of progress. Holly?
2: Thank you, Dr. Nick. As he just said, that was Dr. Nick Hayden, also known as Dr. Nick the incrementalist. Check.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Holly, and thank you very much, Dr. Nick. Dr. Nick is the founder and the CEO of Incremental Healthcare. We have much news to report, and we'll be right back. Attend the
0: premier CDI event of the summer. The American Health Information Management Association is hosting the 2019 CDI Summit Advancing the Practice Exam. It's July 14th and 15th in Chicago. The CDI Summit explores the challenges presented by today's complex healthcare environment. There are four keynote speakers and three tracks addressing CDI best practices, innovation, implementation, and ICD 10 CMPCS. This conference is all about empowering professionals to improve the way healthcare information is received, managed, and communicated. And while you're in Chicago, don't forget to explore the scenic riverwalk, visit world-renowned museums, and taste fine cuisine as well as the city's famous hot dogs and pizza. Earn 13 CEUs and 13 CNEs at the summit and take your program to the next level. Register before June 13th to save $100. Visit ahima.org slash CDI Summit today.
1: Now's the time for Watch, featuring nationally recognized healthcare technology consultant Stanley Knockerson. Good morning, Stanley. A
7: lot of news coming out of Washington these days. What do we need to know? Good morning, Chuck, and everyone. I'm reporting from the X-12 meeting in San Antonio, Texas, just for folks' information. X-12 is the standards organization that's developed the data and format for the electronic claim, remittance advice, eligibility, and other transactions that have been adopted as national standards under the HIPAA regulations. The healthcare industry is currently using the 5010 version of the transactions, which were required for use uh, on January 1st, 2012, replacing the original 4010 versions. Now, X12 has continued to develop later versions of these transactions. Version 7030 is being finalized this year, and it's expected to be recommended for use as the next version for HIPAA. Improvements in the transactions, which recognize changes in the healthcare system are included, such as support for multiple insurance coverages, greater number of diagnoses and procedure codes included on claims, and more detail on eligibility information, as well as better balancing on the remittance device transaction. So we'll have a new version of the transactions to look forward to sometime in the near future, uh, perhaps as early as uh, next year. Now, m- meanwhile, in regulatory news, drug companies will now be required to disclose to, p- to patients the price for prescription drugs. A final regulation was published in May that now requires direct consumer television advertisements for prescription drug and biological products covered by Medicare and Medicaid to include the list price, the wholesale acquisition cost, if that price is equal to or greater than $35 for a month's supply uh, or the usual course of therapy with the prices updated quarterly. I think this is an important part of our administration's efforts to provide greater transparency for consumers in in healthcare. More rules regarding hospital and physician pricing are expected soon. We've previously discussed the major interoperability rules that ONC and CMS have proposed to make clinical and claims data more available for sharing with other providers and going directly to patients. The extended comment period for those rules ended yesterday, and comments are already being shared publicly, indicating major concerns uh, with the cost and the timing of these requirements and the burden on providers. It certainly looks like ONC and CMS will have their work cut out for them in reconciling the comments with their proposals. Holly, back to you. Thank you, Stan.
2: That was Healthcare IT Authority Stanley Nockinson. Stanley is the founder of Knockinson Advisors, LLC. Chuck?
1: Thanks, Holly. And thank you again, Stanley Nockerson. That was a very good report. A recent study by the Journal of the American Medical Association shows that the suicide rate among girls 10 to 14 has been increasing faster than it has for boys in the same age bracket. Providing much-needed context and insight into this very disturbing trend is renowned psychiatrist and author, Dr. H. Stephen Moffitt. Dr. Moffitt, what seems to be driving this disturbing trend?
8: Well, Chuck, before I get to that, I just wanted to praise the report of Lori um, about burnout. We, I and two other psychiatrists, actually have a book coming out on that in September. But as to your question, the second leading cause of death in this age group historically has been about three times as many adolescent males than females who have committed suicide, and usually by guns, whereas adolescent girls had many more attempts, mainly by overdose. Given this historical difference in means of attempting suicide, it seems that girls had actually long had a higher weight of suicidality. We need to note that this more lethal means by girls was not guns, so gun control won't help here, but by hanging and suffocating. The years of the research study was 1975 to 2016. However, the actual increase of suicide in the young teenage girls was only from 2007 on. The study did not reflect on why this change occurred. It was before the Me Too movement, but certainly during the time that the roles of females were changing and Internet bullying emerged, and girls in this age group can be the cruelest, as did selfies emerge as well as the legalization of marijuana in some states. Whenever social change, and thereby expectations, is rapid, suicide risk seems to escalate, especially when there is also great personal bodily change, as is the, some, as is in the case of the some-type beryllium hormonal change in these young girls, often combining in a strong desire to be both pretty and productive. In prior times, the push for pure productivity in young girls usually started to diminish rather than increase during adolescence. Actually, the even more worrisome news is that suicides among all American youth has been on the rise for a decade, following a downward trend, suggesting societal stressors. We don't know what percentage of these suicides were in treatment. Symptom-wise, persistent sadness or hopelessness were common, suggesting treatable clinical depression and giving loved ones and friends a warning sign to intervene. The first intervention has to be to talk more about suicide, as we are doing here and have done in the past, Chuck. Back to you, Holly.
2: Thank you, Dr. Moffick. That was nationally renowned psychiatrist and author D.H. Stephen Moffick. Dr. Moffick's latest book is Islamophobia and Psychiatry, Recognition, Prevention, and Treatment.
1: Thanks, Holly, very much. And, Dr. Moffick, thank you again for that very interesting uh, regrettably sad story. Thanks again. We continue with part two of our lead story this morning about inaccurate coding, plus news about LCDs and codes. Once again, here's Holly Louie.
2: Last week, we talked about the coding contest conducted by Central Learning and their affiliation with some AHIMA articles that uh, production benchmarks can um, create some coding errors and inaccuracies just due to the pressure to meet those, especially when there's research required to really understand and know and implement the coding convention. For those who might be interested, there is a new contest starting in July, and the links and the information is in your re- excuse me, your event resources. as are connections to what I want to talk about next. We know that there's typically that correlation between production and accuracy when production expectations are too high. However, part of the problem is that some of the um, CMS protocols, policies, new requirements are going to make that job even harder for our good coders. So part of the 21st Century Cures Act allegedly, supposedly, was going to make LCDs more transparent, more easily understood, and more consistent across the MAC jurisdictions. However... Historically, also, the NCDs were easily accessed on the CMS website and the LCD links were also very easily accessed and they included that max interpretations that included the CPT codes that were applicable to the policy and the diagnosis codes that were applicable to the policy for coverage purposes. However, Chapter 13 of the Program Integrity Manual update has thrown a massive monkey wrench in that whole process. It is no longer going to be appropriate to include CPT codes or ICD 10CM codes in the LCDs. They shall be removed. That is the direct CMS quote from the manual. Instead, the less than user friendly solution is that the coding rules and guidelines and coverage and other information that coders have to know is going to be included in various and billing and coding articles, policy articles, or other presentations on the Mac website. This to me is like the old game, Where's Waldo? The coder is going to have to be researching all of the creation on the Mac websites, and not all of them are user friendly by any definition, to try to find the information they need when they are trying to code and they need to know, do I add a modifier? Do I have an ABN? Do I not have an ABN? What does the policy say? And I think this is a very unuser friendly solution that CMS is implementing. I'm not really sure why the genesis of that was the decision to remove all the coding information where it was easily found, easily accessible, and very straightforward into a variety of articles and other documents. So I think this is going to further impact coder Um, production. I think it is going to further potentially impact coder accuracy because trying to take time to look for all this information that is scattered all over the Mac website, I absolutely believe is going to be problematic. That's what I have today, Chuck. Back to you.
1: Thanks Holly very much for that report. Now's the time for the uh, Tuesday Q&A, we do have a question uh, that I wanted to send to uh, Stanley Knox. And, Stanley, here's a question from our friend George. He wants to know if the 70-30 transaction get regulatory approval, what is the potential implementation
7: timeline? Stanley, any thoughts on that? Sure. The latest legislation requires actually a 27-month timeline to implement any new HIPAA changes. So we're talking about giving the industry uh, a little over two years uh, to implement uh, changes once they're adopted. Uh, the regulation, you know, even my best guess is that we won't see a final regulation till uh, the end of uh, next year, probably, uh, at the earliest. So uh, we've got uh, plenty of time before we need to worry about implementing seventy thirty.
1: Very good. Thanks, Stanley. And George, thanks for sending in the question. Of course, we're going to be monitoring that situation next year, or two. Thanks again. That's going to be a wrap for our 371st edition of Talked in Tuesday. And Holly and I want to thank our panelists this morning, Ron Buckholtz, Lori Johnson, Doctor H. Stephen Moffat, Stanley Moxon, whom you just heard, Tim Powell, and of course Doctor Nick Vander Hayden. I also want to thank you, Holly Louie, for sitting in today for Doctor Erica Reamer, who's on assignment. Thanks, Holly, very much. We'll be back next Tuesday morning, same time, and you can listen to us on Talk Ten Tuesday podcast anytime, anywhere on any device. It's absolutely free. You can listen to us on. Stitcher. You can listen to us on Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for Talk 10 Tuesday and ICD-10 Monitor. Thank you again for being with us.
0: Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.